When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I met Dan Shapiro when uh, Barack Obama decided to run for president back in 2007, and he came on as a foreign policy advisor on Middle East issues. I served with him in the White House when he was on the National Security Council. I slipped off late in the day sometimes to play basketball with him on the White House basketball court where he showed me all his old... uh, JCC basketball moves. But more than anything, I came to respect him as the U.S. ambassador to Israel uh, for six years of the Obama administration during very, very eventful and challenging times. And we sat down to talk about it the other day when he visited the Institute of Politics. Dan Shapiro, my old friend, it's, it's good to see you. It's good to be here, David. Someone gave me a quote of yours that said, the job of U.S. Ambassador to Israel was a job I had been preparing for my entire life, even though I didn't know it. You were like a kid from Champaign, Urbana, Illinois. Uh, So tell me about how you unknowingly were preparing for this all your life. Well, when I was four years old, my parents, who were academics at the University of Illinois, uh, took a sabbatical. And what are they? What were they? What were their areas? My father is an English professor. Uh, Shakespeare is really his area of expertise. Um, later, he started the Jewish Studies program at the University of Illinois, so he broadened out uh, to do American Jewish literature. Though, if you're going to get involved in the quest for Middle East peace, then Shakespeare may be. <laughs> he has perfect. a lot. He has yeah. a lot of lessons uh, yeah. that are vi- that are uh, relevant. Yeah. Uh, my mother's a writer and was teaching and writing in the in the English department as well. So they had a sabbatical and uh, decided to uh, spend a semester in Israel. Were they deeply uh, steeped in, in in Jewish uh, culture and faith? And no, they uh, were the children of uh, the children of immigrants uh, in uh, who had really integrated and assimilated significantly, and they were just at the beginning of what became a lifelong or most of their adult lifelong uh, exploration of Jewish life. And so they were really just at the beginning of that process with young children, which was what sparked it. Uh-huh. They decided they really had to learn more and then give more to their teacher. Our, our, our family Jewish life became very, very rich, but at that time it was really only at, the, at its infancy. So they decided to spend the semester in Israel out of curiosity uh, to learn. Uh, again, they felt some connection, but not, not something I would describe as deep. So we went there. Uh, it was August 1973. Yeah, a, uh, f- a fairly fortuitous right. time to arrive. Right. So we spent uh, the first few weeks adjusting to this life in a new country. I was going to uh, with my brother to uh, a local gan or nursery school, learning Hebrew. My sister going to, to elementary school. And it was a, a great adventure until, of course, Yom Kippur. Uh, uh, that uh, that f- uh, fall, 
when the sirens started to sound and the uh, soldiers started to mobilize through the streets of Jerusalem where we were living. And uh, we You're six years old. Four years old. Four years old. So how do you pro- – do you remember it all? I remember, the th- I remember it the way one remembers things from four years old uh, with certain images that are very prominent. I don't think I can describe the whole narrative of the three weeks of the war. Uh, but I remember going to the bomb shelters. Uh, I remember blacking out the apartment. I remember the confusion uh, that my parents were dealing with of just trying to understand what was going on. Uh, their Hebrew was not that good. Uh, the news was uh, uh, was sporadic, and uh, it was just hard to know. And they tried to uh, assess it from their neighbors. And of course, all of their Israeli neighbors, our Israeli neighbors, were dealing with probably, yeah, and dealing with the trauma of having their sons and brothers and fathers right. going off yeah. to the front. So uh, it was a, a confusing time. Now they, of course, immediately got. Uh, pressure from their parents. Bring the grandchildren home. You know, what are you, what are you doing there? Get out, get out of Israel. And they made a, what well, it turned out to be a very significant decision for our family. They decided to stay uh, and and help volunteer anywhere they could uh, where people had gone to fight. So my father was on a moshav uh, in a chicken coop. He was in a school teaching. He was in the Angel Bakery uh, down the street. Anywhere men had gone to uh, to fight, uh, he uh, volunteered. My mother was uh, mostly, you know, helping take care of, uh, of the three young children. Uh, but they really uh, felt that sense of, uh, that was what began that sense of identification, that this was more than just a, a semester abroad. This turned into uh, a, a something much more meaningful. Of course, the war ended, and we stayed for the rest of the semester. And just one more on. Uh, you say you you remember confusion. Do you remember? Do you, do you remember fear? I don't know. Four year olds remember that. I remember um, my older sister being very scared. She was about seven, uh, and I remember my parents being worried. I think I was too young mm-hmm. uh, to really uh, understand it well enough to really be afraid. I can remember playing tag in the bomb shelters uh, with the other kids in the apartment building. Um, I, I just you know, don't quite remember feeling that sense of crippling fear myself, although I'm sure there, there must have been moments. So you come back to the States after that experience, and, right. and then how did your own uh, path uh, go from there? Right. Well, it, it meant that we as a family forged a, a bond with Israel that really stayed with us uh, throughout my childhood. And so kind of around the dinner table, uh, the conversation would very frequently alight on whatever the events of, of the Middle East were. Uh, we were thrilled and followed intensely the peace negotiations with Egypt, Sadat's visit to Jerusalem, uh, the ultimate Camp David Accords. Uh, then it was the war in Lebanon, uh, which was a very traumatic one. Later, it was the, the first intifada. But generally speaking, these were kind of very uh, central parts of, of family discussion and very prominent in my own mind. Uh, I uh, determined that I wanted to spend more time in Israel uh, later on uh, as I was uh, nearing the end of high school. So I started to study Hebrew seriously in high school, uh, first at a summer camp and then uh, in uh, high school and, and college classes. And uh, it, it, it definitely drew me to uh, find my own uh, relationship, to find my own relationship uh, with Israel. So on that uh, trip I took after high school, between high school and college, I specifically looked for a program uh, where I'd be able to live with an Israeli family, 
and found one that didn't speak any English uh, and really immerse myself do the usual study and travel uh, elements that are on that kind of uh, uh, experience, but uh, most especially to try to really immerse myself in Israeli society, uh, get my Hebrew up to, to fluency, uh, and really sort of understand uh, understand uh, what Israelis lived with and how they felt and how they thought every day. I hear from Israeli friends that, um, you know, they've seen you out and about speaking at, at- – at services or uh, on television or on the radio uh, and commenting on the on your fluency in Hebrew and that and what an advantage that was to you as as the American ambassador did you find that I did and I found it to be more impactful than I expected you know I thought when I went the fact that I spoke Hebrew and I'd worked hard to sort of get it up to uh, a level I could use for public speaking and media uh, the people would appreciate it. Oh, that's nice. The ambassador speaks some some Hebrew. It was much deeper than that, much more profound uh, for a couple of reasons. Number one, I think it speaks to Israelis' sense of isolation. You know, there's only one place in the world you could have gone and spent the time and invested in the cultural knowledge uh, to master that language, and that's Hebrew. And so it said to people, wow, this is someone who gets us. Uh, and therefore, they were willing to listen, uh, listen to policy dis- uh, descriptions that they might not agree with, but that they could hear uh, in in very concrete terms was coming from someone who, who sort of spoke their language, but also got where they were coming from. And the second reason it was impactful is because a lot of Israelis don't speak that good English. Uh, it may seem like a, a, an obvious statement, but, you know, we tend to gravitate toward Jerusalem and Tel Aviv and, and people who have studied in the States. And so there's a I think a misperception, including on my own part, that most Israelis speak English and you can get by just fine. The truth is a lot don't. And so if you want to, and this is true in any country, connect to people without a filter and help them really understand what you're trying to say, and then, of course, listen to them uh, in, without, the, without the filter as well, doing it in their own language uh, makes an enormous difference. Uh, did, did, was, was faith, how much was the faith uh, dimension part of that? It was very important. Uh, I grew up in a, a Reformed Jewish household. Nowadays, I consider myself conservative. Um, but all those years of, of religious studies, of uh, summer camps, Jewish summer camps, uh, definitely imbued in me a feeling that I, as a Jew, uh, had a special connection uh, with uh, this country far away and where I'd only visited once uh, through all my childhood uh, but that uh, I felt connected to that history and, mm-hmm. and that story of return, that story of uh, a people that had been exiled from their homeland uh, and through centuries of uh, wandering, much of it tragic, uh, had finally found their way back home and uh, and rebuilt that 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 state. Uh, that 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 spoke to me very very personally, absolutely. And you uh, and you made it the focus, as you were saying, of of your studies, right? So I I. Uh, Quickly, uh, have to have, have, when I started uh, college, it was originally at WashU in St. Louis, although I later transferred to Brandeis, I, I decided to understand Israel. I really also need to understand uh, uh, not just Hebrew, I also needed to learn Arabic. So I started to study Arabic. Uh, I started to uh, get deeper into studies of, of Middle East history, of Jewish and Islamic uh, relations through the centuries, uh, took many courses in, in Islam. Uh, and it really became more of a uh, of a, uh, a focus on uh, Middle East history that was really uh, animating me. Although I followed the politics uh, very closely, and the first Intifada, which uh, erupted— Uprising uh, by the Palestinians. Right, which uh, broke out in December of 1987 uh, when I was a freshman uh, in college. Uh, I have to say I followed it 
intensely day to day, and it was very painful and traumatic to, to watch the scenes playing out. Uh, Israeli soldiers running after Palestinian, mostly then kids, st- throwing stones. The later intifadas were much more violent. Um, it was probably the first issue on which I really formed my own opinion, uh, independent of my parents, uh, not that their opinions were all that different, but that I had really done my own homework and really researched and really uh, thought deeply about the issues. And it, it led me, uh, as somebody who was then and remains today, you know, deeply committed to Israel and deeply moved by its story and founding and deeply committed to its security and, and the need to have in Israel uh, because of uh, everything that's happened to the Jewish people through the years, to also feel that there needed to be an accommodation and some kind of uh, uh, arrangement where both Israelis and Palestinians could uh, live in their own states. So I was a pretty early adopter, uh, if you would, of the two-state solution idea. Uh, 1988, let's say, it wasn't that common or that popular an idea, uh, at least among uh, in the Jewish community, at least among people who considered themselves, you know, supporters of Israel. But that really hit me uh, very early, uh, early on, that there was no other uh, solution uh, to a conflict. It was interesting when I had been in Israel in eighty, early '87, on this uh, gap year program. Uh, there just hadn't been all that much discussion in the. Uh, curriculum that we were studying about the Palestinian issue. Uh, those first 20 years, let's say, of uh, the occupation after 19, uh, after the Six-Day War were relatively quiet years. Uh, and it was only when uh, the, the Intifada erupted that a lot of people had to kind of go back and relook at that situation and say, is this really a sustainable model uh, for the long term? Sustainable uh, for reasons of maintaining a a Jewish democratic state, and also sustainable, and I speak now uh, as a Jew, uh, sustainable uh, in terms of the values of uh, of Judaism and the values of of, of Israeli society. Right. Uh, both of those were, were were obviously put under pressure uh, by and continue uh, and be. continue to be uh, by uh, the sustained control of a of a large population. That doesn't want to be uh, under Israel's control. Now, as the story develops, and maybe we'll get into it a little bit later, uh, you know, there are many, many uh, reasons for Israelis to be cautious, yeah. uh, for Israelis to be risk averse, mm-hmm. to Israelis to feel, and with justification, that frequently the other side or the other party uh, has uh, not lived up to anything like the values we would uh, expect of them. There's been violence, there's been terror, there's been delegitimization, and that continues also to this day. Yeah, thousands, that, thousands of rockets raining down. Absolutely, you, you know. absolutely. I experienced that. Uh, in the last few years as ambassador. But that core understanding of uh, there's only one outcome here in which Israelis can live in their Jewish democratic state and peace and security and Palestinians can meet their legitimate aspirations for independence uh, in a two-state solution. That that hit me in 1988, and uh, I haven't haven't changed my mind about it since then. We're going to get to that uh, in a little bit. I j- just want to you, – you, you then decided to take the training that you had and go into uh, government, and you spent – Bunch of time on Capitol Hill. Right. So I thought I was going to get a Ph.D. in history. I finished my degree at Brandeis, uh, started uh, a uh, Ph.D. program in the Center for Middle Eastern Studies at Harvard. And in the first summer between uh, the two years of the master's portion of that program, I decided to do an internship with the State Department. Um, and it changed my 
direction completely. Uh, I went to uh, the United Arab Emirates. Whatever happened to the State Department? Well, that's a different. We'll get to that, too. <laughs> we'll get to it. Yeah. I went to the United Arab Emirates, our, our embassy in Abu Dhabi, and our consulate in Dubai. It was a year after the first Gulf War, so there were a lot of very interesting Gulf security issues, Iran, bullying, the UAE. Now, were you fluent in Arabic at, by then? Well, not fluent, but it was pretty, uh, pretty, us- it was pretty yeah, strong. Useful. It was usable. Uh, and I did use it in a small, what well, was a small embassy then. I'm sure it's much larger today. As a graduate intern, uh, everyone else went on vacation. They said to me, you're the political officer for the summer. So <laughs> you're, you're going to the foreign ministry and you're doing the diplomacy. And they asked me to write some, I thought, uh, fairly serious uh, cables about uh, the security situation. It's amazing the experience. I mean, you know, I run this Institute of Politics. Mm-hmm. You've been good enough to, uh, to speak uh, there uh, in, in recent days. And um, these young people go off to internships and have really meaningful experiences. They're given real uh, responsibilities, and it's life-changing. Indeed, it was for me. Uh, so I, I came home from that summer uh, to having changed my mind completely about uh, my direction, the no longer seeking the PhD in history. Instead, I uh, finished out a master's degree that was more U.S. foreign policy and Middle East politics, and then went to Washington. And I worked for much of the next decade or two on Capitol Hill. I uh, was uh, Lee Hamilton's uh, Middle East advisor on yeah. the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Kind of a giant in, uh, in, also in the annals of an, congressional history. An incredible boss and even other senior staff on his uh, team to learn from how, how to do foreign policy the right way in a bipartisan way, how to really uh, put U.S. interests first above domestic politics. Lee Hamilton was uh, an incredible mentor uh, in that regard, not just for me, for, for hundreds and hundreds of others. Later for Senator Dianne Feinstein of California, later for Senator Bill Nelson of Florida. And I had a range of responsibilities, but I was always uh, keeping foreign policy and usually Middle East policy at the center. And all three of them, uh, who also followed uh, that a dictum of uh, a bipartisan foreign policy maintained a, a close focus on the Middle East, so it kept me it kept me closely involved. And you spent a couple of years in the Clinton administration as well. I did. I worked for uh, Sandy Berger when he was the National Security Advisor as a congressional liaison, and that was actually really important at a fateful time, right? Because they, one of the things that they were trying to accomplish at that time was to forge the kind of agreement that you're still. Seeking today, right? right. So the yeah, the, so the Camp David summit, the uh, uh, failed Camp David summit of July 2000, uh, took place during that period. So I was involved in trying to help shape the congressional understanding of what was being attempted, and then of course what the what the fallout and the aftermath was. Uh, it was also a very important uh, experience just to learn how the executive branch functions. Uh, the legislative branch and the executive branch uh, really are almost two different planets, and particularly I think we're in, seeing that right now. <laughs> yeah, and 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 it, 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 if you've worked in one but not the other, you're not nearly as effective until you see how it wor- looks on the other side of the of the fence. I want to ask you about that. We got to take a short break, and we'll be right back with uh, former Ambassador Dan Shapiro. This issue of experience seems really important right now because you have a president uh, who has never served a day in government or the military. This is the first time in American history that that's happened. And a White House staff, uh, almost none of whom have had experience uh, in government, either in the legislative branch or in the executive branch, uh, how much of the turmoil that we've seen in the first uh couple of months of this administration uh, is as a result of just uh, 
lack of experience? I think it's uh, a huge problem. Uh, at the moment, as you say, there are uh, most of the people in decision-making roles uh, are newcomers to government. And uh, government's complicated. It's its own animal. Uh, it has it's like its healthcare. It's complicated. Yeah. It has its own rhythm, uh, figuring out how to get the information you need, figuring out how to uh, work as a team uh, to integrate that information and make policy recommendations. Ultimately, the decisions only made by the decision makers. Um, but that, that is not something that if you've never done it before, uh, you just kind of uh, walk in and know how that organization works. And so what force you've got big gaps in staffing, you know, between the Secretary of State and the working levels of the State Department, there's about four or five levels, undersecretaries, deputies, undersecretaries, assistant secretaries, uh, almost none of them, uh, and those are really the, the workhorses of the policymaking process are in place right now. And there's almost complete cutoff from what one hears between the working levels and the seventh floor where Secretary Tillerson sits. Yeah, I mean, I want to ask you as someone who was, uh, had you – I think you were the longest-serving ambassador, is that right, in, in Israel? Uh, well, I was the third longest to do that job, but I was the longest-serving ambassador in the Obama administration at the end of the term. So you, you're very familiar with the State Department. What is going on with the State Department? The president proposed a, a almost a third cut in the State Department budget, and it feels like uh, Jared Kushner, the president's uh, son-in-law, is a more integral part of foreign policy making than the Secretary of State. I mean, maybe that's unfair, but it, that's the way it appears from well, the outside. I think it's accurate, at least, again, by, by all appearances. Uh, numerous issues have been assigned to, to Jared Kushner, Middle East peace, uh, and there's a lawyer, Jason Greenblatt, Faust in the White House, who's actually doing it day to day. U.S.-Canada relations, U.S.-China relations. I noticed he was in Iraq uh, over the last uh, couple of days. Uh, whereas Secretary Tillerson has been absent from almost all of the president's meetings with foreign leaders. Uh, he's, Have you ever seen that before? No. Uh, that's very unusual. He's also just been uh, very, very low, high, extremely low profile, uh, which uh, one usually expects the Secretary of State to be the main foreign policy spokesperson for the United States. And that's important to educate allies and adversaries and our own public and Congress uh, about priorities. Uh, and day to day, he and his team and his embassies need to be the ones to implement policy. And they so they need to be seen as connected uh, and credible uh, and to be able to speak on behalf of the president. And when they are as distant and, and low profile and quiet as they've been, it really raises that question. And so it, it you know, I worry about our ambassadors and embassies around the world uh, going into the uh, host governments and the host governments looking at them and saying these are very nice people, but they really don't have any idea uh, what the policy is. And not every relationship can depend on a phone call to Jared Kushner. There are other people in our government who need to be able to speak uh, credibly and competently on behalf of the government. You think these? Uh, you think foreign governments are – Learning how to game the system. They have to. They have no choice. And I don't. I don't uh, begrudge that. You know, any foreign government has to find out what channel uh, is most effective to advance its interests with the United States. Uh, I think it serves us better when we uh, present a unified and uh, cohesive team uh, representing the different uh, uh, different uh, uh, institutions in our government: the State Department, the Pentagon, the NSC. Uh, other agencies as well. Uh, and right now, I, I just don't 
see any kind of cohesiveness or any kind of uh, ability for those other departments to speak uh, speak credibly. Yeah, well, you know, you see it even within the White House itself. I mean, there's, as you know, and you, you were on the National Security Council before you became an ambassador at the Obama administration. I want to talk to you about that experience and your experience with President Obama and the and the Middle East process. But, uh, you know, there's always tension between White Houses and and agencies, even state and uh, the Pentagon. Um, but what's unusual here is you've got uh, Steve Bannon sitting at the elbow of the president who's espoused one uh, worldview and set of policies that are very much uh, populist, uh, anti-institutional, anti-global institutions, anti-China. Uh, and then you have uh, Kushner, you have uh, Gary Cohn, the, and his uh, chief economic advisor, even the Secretary of Treasury, advocating a different set of policies. So, if you're if you're the Chinese, for example, you're trying to scope all this out and say, well, how do we deal with this guy? And uh, he's a deal maker. How do we make a deal? And who do we make a deal with? It's kind of interesting because all the stories leading into the summit uh, with. Uh, with the Chinese is uh, that Jared Kushner was the guy who structured that. You know, it's not uh, unprecedented by any means to have uh, rivalries or factions within a White House. Uh, I think uh, President Obama's White House was uh, far less riven in that regard Mm -hmm. than some others, although, you know, there are disagreements, and that's actually legitimate. Um, and a president has to be the, in the end, the referee and to listen to the different views and then make a decision. I, I think what's alarming in this situation is, is that we have a president who really has a very limited uh, background in most of these issues uh, and uh, has uh, not demonstrated through his life, much less through his pol- short political career, uh, an interest in going very deep uh, into, uh, into them. And so he's really often, it seems, subject to the last person he talks to. And, and some of the people he talks to, and I'd, I'd certainly put some of the names you mentioned uh, in that category, are, to me, uh, advocating some very extreme and even dangerous positions. And so we hear that come out in this kind of casting aspersions on our alliance with NATO. I mean, NATO has been the, the absolute rock of transatlantic, I would say, even global security for, for decades. And yet here we are out of the gate uh, – calling into question whether we will meet our obligations to our NATO allies. Similarly, at different times to Asian allies. And then it kind of goes back and forth, you know, after calling into question whether we were really going to stand by certain commitments to Asian allies. Then he had a very warm visit with uh, the prime minister uh, of Japan. Um, And and, and it also, you you know, he, he or others may be saying one thing while, you know, General Mattis is overseas saying another thing, um, it's got to be confusing to the world. Yeah, so that unpredictability, uh, that inconsistency, uh, that being pulled back and forth between different factions without maybe a real ideological core that you can uh, come back to uh, is extremely confusing and dangerous. I mean, it's confusing to allies who are worried and who are anxious about whether the United States is going to stand by uh, traditional commitments. And by the way, even if it's not directed at them, if I... Uh, can guess what certain Israeli uh, leaders are feeling. It's not that there's a question about whether the United States will stand up to 
uh, will stand up to for, for its commitments to Israel's security. It's that what kind of ally is the United States if even our NATO partners uh, aren't sure? Uh, and what's the United States standing globally if uh, adversaries think that they have traditional adversaries think they suddenly have an in uh, with key White House staff uh, and uh, key allies are are feeling uh, are, are, are feeling uncertain, so I, I think it's a, it is dangerous, uh, and I think it uh, it's uh, it's very worrying. I, I don't I don't look I don't uh, have much I can say positive about this administration across a range of issues, domestic and foreign. I will say uh, maybe we'll get to it in more We're detail. We're going to yes that on the issue of Israel and the Palestinians in terms of they've uh, surprised you. They've surprised me to the good. Right. Uh, they've surprised me uh, by uh, running a policy so far that is more responsible and more uh, in keeping with traditional norms of U.S. foreign policy. That is strong support for Israel's security, uh, a strong uh, push to try to help Israel negotiate uh, peace with its neighbors, including the Palestinians, but including other Arab states, and a uh, clear view that uh, continued construction of Israeli settlements is one of the factors that makes that harder. And so all of those are consistent with uh, our, the policy we had in the Obama administration, but the policies of several previous administrations as well. Yeah, it's interesting. I want, I want to get to that. I, I, I just want to clo- uh, talk a little more about your journey and how my, I came to know you in 2007 when you showed up as a advisor to uh, Senator Obama when he was running for president. What drew you to him? Um. I guess uh, the first uh, answer is that my sister, uh, who's a law professor here in uh, Chicago, uh, had told me about him when he was running for Senate in 2004. I'd actually been asked to help uh, another candidate in that primary, whose name I won't mention, uh, just because a friend was advising. Uh, and she said to me, why are you helping uh, – you know, that candidate, you should be helping this guy. He's the real deal. He's really smart. I know him from, you know, the law firm and University of Chicago circles. And I said, uh, what's his name? And she said, Barack Obama. And I said, oh, Carolyn, you're so naive. You don't know anything about politics. With a name <laughs> like that, he's not going to get elected to dog catcher. You, 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 you wouldn't be alone in having made that assumption. I heard that a lot when we yes. started out. I know he tells that joke on himself, even yes. from his first conversations with political consultants. Anyway, uh, it shows what Washington experts know. Um, when he was elected to the Senate, I got to know him. He was on the Foreign Relations Committee where I was working with Senator Nelson. Uh, and uh, I was also very fortunate, uh, I suppose, that he hired uh, Pete Rouse and Mark Lippert uh, into his uh, Senate office. And these were people, good friends who I'd worked with for many years. Pete Rouse years. had been the chief of staff for Senator Tom Daschle when he was majority leader. And right. And Mark Lippert one, had I worked with me with Senator Feinstein and later for the Senate. N- another national Committee. security guy ended up as an ambassador to South Korea. Indeed. And so. Uh, I just started hanging around the Obama office, uh, had Chicago and Illinois connections, uh, had friends in the office. And it turned out that uh, Mark, uh, who's a, a, a truly brilliant foreign policy analyst, didn't have a lot of uh, background in the Middle East. He'd done work on many other issues. And he would just sort of turn to me kind of as an informal uh, sounding board and advisor uh, for uh, Middle East matters as they'd come before the committee. So I helped plan Senator Obama's uh, trip to Israel uh, in 2006. It was the first time he'd ever gone, and, and he went. I didn't go with him, but I helped put together an itinerary to help make sure he would kind of touch bases with all the different 
parts of the Israeli political scene and Israeli society. Uh, and that, that went pretty well. And when uh, he was uh, preparing to announce to run for president in uh, beginning of 2007, uh, I was actually about to leave the Senate and go to do some, some private sector work. And, and Mark kind of knocked on my door and he said, uh, you know, we're putting together a team of outside foreign policy advisors for the campaign. I said, yeah, OK. And he said, and you're going to be the Middle East advisor. And I said, I am. <laughs> he said, yeah. And you have a speech you have to write for uh, uh, an APAC forum that the president's going to speak at in, uh, in February in Chicago. So that pulled me in uh, to the work. I, you know, candidly uh, didn't know his chances were so great. I sort of thought this might be a few months, a uh, little uh, uh, hobby assignment until he uh, lost in the primary. You didn't ask. You, I would have told you. Right. I, I was uh, uh, maybe not a, a full believer on day one. But those first three or four months, being able to spend time with him, being able to work on uh, speeches and, and other materials for the campaign, uh, that's when I really drank the Kool-Aid, uh, not only about him and what a, a, a outstanding leader I thought he could be and, and president uh, across uh, many issues, but on the issues I knew best, uh, somebody who really approached them from a very similar uh, perspective. Uh, strong commitment to the traditional alliance between the United States and Israel, uh, strong belief that needs to be one of the core uh, anchors of our Middle East policy, uh, but also a belief that uh, one had to work on uh, negotiating uh, peace between Israelis and Palestinians to make good on that alliance, to help serve our own interests, but also Israel's future uh, as a Jewish and democratic state. Um, and, of course, uh, in, in the broader Middle East, trying to uh, reduce our own uh, presence and, 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 and footprint and the, the, the costs we were incurring uh, because of the, uh, the war in Iraq uh, and uh, work with p- partners in the region to help them take on more of that burden with us as a, as a convener and as an ally, but not necessarily do it shouldering all the burden ourselves. So I know you uh, traveled with him to synagogues and to – uh, gatherings uh, within the community, as I did. Uh, and you know, uh, as I do, that he met with, he, he, as you say, he reflected your thinking and the thinking of a lot of American Jews about, uh, my own included, about uh, what, about both the importance of our alliance um, for a variety of reasons that transcend even strategic uh, interests. And uh, and the need to ultimately resolve this, uh, you know, terrible impasse, uh, and to relieve Israel of the burden of being a, a permanent sort of occupying force. Uh, but it was less well received from him than you. Why did why did Barack Obama? meet with such resistance among segments of the Jewish community. He got 78% of the Jewish vote in 2008, so he did. I'm, I'm talking about vocal segments of yeah. the community. Right. So the first thing to say is one shouldn't overstate the, right. uh, the, the at least in percentage terms, uh, right. how people in the Jewish community feel about him or felt about him during all those years. Um, look, there was a narrative uh, that kind of grew up around him, uh, how much of it was because he was named Barack Obama and he was an African American? Look, it 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 was the newness and the differentness and the unusual biography that he came with him. I think obviously that played into it. 
played into it. First of all, he was new on the national stage. Outside of the Jewish community around Chicago, uh, and as you know, m- most of its leaders have then and still now think of him as a yeah, great he friend. Yeah, a very and, close and, relationship. And a strong relationship. But outside of that community, he was not well known. That's unusual for a politician getting to the level, the national level he did. And so many other people were just sort of hearing whatever they heard from whatever rumor. And, and it was also... Therefore a, subject to caricature. And it was also at a time, I think, when the phenomenon of uh, internet rumors uh, was really sort of reaching a, a kind of a new, uh, a new uh, plateau. And uh, people could basically drop any story about him uh, onto the net, and it would race around. And as Mark Twain said, the lie gets halfway around the world before the truth gets its boots on. So, yeah, and that was before the internet. That was before the internet, but it's it's certainly been made more true since then. Uh, and so there were, you know, look, various episodes. Uh, you know, he had relationships uh, which he was proud of, and, and deservedly so, with uh, Palestinian Americans as well uh, here in Chicago. And so sometimes those were twisted to say, ah, see, he's not so unfriendly. There was a story about. Reverend Wright and you know mm-hmm. Reverend Wright's stated views, which the prime, pre- president never uh, endorsed in any way. His past, uh, yeah, but uh, that that became a, a factor in it. You know, in the end, the approach I took and others on the campaign took that uh, those next two years was look is there's facts, there's there's rumors, there's a supposition, there's even innuendo. Uh, much of it fueled by people with a clear political agenda, which is to hurt him or more broadly to kind of drive a partisan wedge into the Jewish community to try to suggest that uh, one party, the Republican Party, is more friendly to Israel and the Democratic Party is less. And so much of it had that very impure uh, uh, motive behind it. Uh, But then there were lots of people out of genuine concern, out of uh, care about Israel and its security and and not knowing what would happen with an unknown president with uh, a different background than they're used to and without the national profile and with some uh, other associations that raised questions for them. Uh, It it meant that we had a lot of work to do to convince people who ultimately did vote for him uh, that, you know, he was fine. Uh, There was nothing you had to worry about. I was personally offended, you know, um, just because I knew him so well, and he'd been my friend for 25 years, and I knew who his other friends and mentors were, uh, many of whom were were, were Jews. And uh, but, um, as you say, uh, there was a an organized effort uh, to try and drive a wedge. Um, I went with him uh, to a, a synagogue in uh, in Florida, and you may have been there as well, but. He gave such a moving speech and genuine about his feeling about uh, the role that the Jewish community played in the civil rights movement, and that was his his first entree into uh, into that relationship, and um, and then uh, you know uh, why Israel was such an inspiration to him then as now, uh, you know, and and but also very directly raising the concerns that you've raised here. Sure. Um, and there, this was always my experience. Uh, we'll get to the maybe other policy differences that came up later in the, in the, in the presidency, but it was always my experience that uh, when you got him in front of people, uh, either a, a group of, of leaders in a small room or, a, or even a larger audience, and he was able to speak in his own voice and communicate his own feelings and his own motivations. Uh, it wasn't that everybody agreed with absolutely every word that came out of his mouth, uh, but that uh, he so 
easily cleared the bar of uh, this is a friend. This is a person who uh, is a friend of mm-hmm. the Jewish community who shares so many of our community's traditions and values and who really has Israel's uh, well-being very much uh, uh, prominent in his mind and in his policies. And he was always able to convince people that I felt uh, in, in his own voice uh, better than, than we the staff could. Got to take another short break. We'll be right back with Dan Shapiro. Let's go to the administration. I know one of the first uh, major um, initiatives or, or addresses he gave wasn't at Cairo University. I was there. Uh, you may have been I there. I was. And um, it was a very moving outreach uh, to uh, the Islamic world. And, but uh, a decision was made not to go to Israel on the same uh, trip. Was that a mistake? I don't think it was a mistake. I know there's been a lot of uh, a lot written about that, and a lot of people involved in the decision, uh, uh, even on, and on our team, have said they they wish we had uh, continued on to Israel. I don't think that was the time to go to Israel. You know, that trip had a very specific purpose, which was to open a conversation with Muslim societies who had really, uh, during the Bush years, come to see the United States in a very unfriendly light. And it was, it was critical that that audience uh, be able to absorb uh, the messages he was trying to, 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 to deliver to them. Uh, there were many, I should add, that among them were uh, that uh, there should be no question raised about Israel's legitimacy. And right. Anybody who thinks they can have a good relationship with the United States without accepting that we will maintain our close bonds with Israel and expect others to, to move in that direction as well should, should think otherwise. But also some tough language about the settlements. And some tough language about settlements and about the, the need for Israel to take certain decisions as well. So I, I think those were important messages for those audiences to deliver. I think had we continued on from Cairo to a trip to Israel, uh, it would have perhaps uh, uh, soothed some of the concerns that Israelis were feeling watching that uh, scene unfold in Cairo. But it also would have meant the trip would have taken on a completely different meaning. Uh, You would have had to not only do Israel, you would also have to do the Palestinians, Mm -hmm. you would probably have also had to do Jordan, and suddenly it becomes a peace process trip. Uh, and, you know, to try to keep the focus on uh, that initial outreach and not have it uh, turn into uh, a trip about the negotiations that then George Mitchell, our envoy, was trying to uh, get launched, uh, I think would have really muddied, uh, muddied the, the, the focus. You've had a, you had a very close uh, bird's-eye view of the relationship between Obama and Bibi Netanyahu, the prime minister of Israel. Uh, and it, it isn't exactly news to say that it wasn't a warm relationship. Why wasn't why why was there never an ability to get to to, to become more close closely aligned on things? Um, just one more point on the previous uh, question, if you if you don't mind, David. I, I I I I my feeling that it wasn't a mistake to go to Cairo was also shaped by the fact that I, we always thought we would be able to get the president there much earlier. We mm-hmm. thought we could get him there within the next six to twelve months as part of a peace process that was getting launched. And of course, we, never happened. It never yes. happened. And so that. So what about Bibi and uh, and Obama? Look. Um, you know, the president has spoken about this in, in ways that I think are, are, are 
uh, are still true. Uh, they, he and, and Prime Minister Netanyahu come from sort of different political traditions, if you will. Prime Minister Netanyahu clearly out of the sort of the right of center camp in Israel, the president from a center or center left uh, camp in the United States. So it's not surprising that they uh, have some differences of outlook. But, you know, we've had those uh, differences in pairings between Israeli and American leaders before. Um, there was also the case that um, they, I want to say before I get to the differences, that they actually did an enormous amount of positive work together and that despite those differences, uh, they uh, really uh, put the focus on the common interests of uh, strengthening the alliance, of strengthening Israel's ability to defend itself. Uh, and we can right. talk we, about we some should, of the ways. We, we should stipulate that for sure. Yeah. But, but let's be honest, I mean, um, some of the things that happened between them were very unusual. Yes, yes. So, I mean, I have to say, I think uh, the prime minister uh, took a view fairly early on, and it was uh, inaccurate in my view, and I would tell him that in, in later periods, uh, that there was almost a desire to harm him politically uh, by some of the things that were being uh, asked of Israel by uh, asking for settlement uh, freezes or, or other limitations on settlement construction. Uh, maybe too much uh, focus or too much um, uh, sympathy for certain Palestinian uh, demands or perspectives. Uh, and, you know, he uh, has always had a approach, I think, to politics to uh, first put uh, – and you almost have to do this in the Israeli political system – to kind of put his own political uh, stability first. It is true that an Israeli prime minister, unlike an American president, can wake up uh, prime minister and by evening uh, have his government fall. Uh, but it's made him very, very cautious. And then when asked to do hard things, as the president did, uh, as he asked others to do hard things, including the Palestinians, uh, he, he would sometimes recoil uh, from that. Yeah, no, I think – and I think my interpretation from the Obama standpoint was he felt a sense of urgency about advancing this two-state solution, and he felt like – uh, Netanyahu had a historic opportunity to do it as Nixon went to China, uh, and that to not do it was to miss uh, a historic opportunity. And and I think the president showed a you know his frustration with that. He did. He was frustrated. I mean, he 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 also did believe that the Prime Minister Netanyahu had. Uh, certain qualities and capabilities and political standing, uh, considering where he came from in the political uh, system in Israel, to actually take some very hard decisions. And of course, there's there's precedent for that in Israel. Menachem uh, Begin giving Sinai back to Egypt and Ariel Sharon yes. uh, withdrawing from Gaza. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it wasn't as if there was a, this was a model that one couldn't couldn't find. But he seemed very, as you point out, very focused on maintaining his coalition, on not creating a political. Yeah. He, he wasn't really eager to spend his political capital on this particular particular project. Yeah, I, I think he has uh, taken tough decisions at times, but uh, overall, his first focus is uh, is one I would define as what's his caution. what's his uh, what's his status today. Well, today he leads a very right-wing government, uh, probably the most right-wing in Israel's history, uh, probably not the coalition he wanted, uh, frankly, uh, uh, coming out of the last election. And he's made several attempts during this government to try to broaden it and to try to bring in uh, uh, Bougie Herzog, the leader of the Zionist Union, the, the center-left uh, party in the opposition, to try to have a more balanced government. 
Um, but you know, he continues to. He's got some legal troubles. He's Corruption been investigated issues. by the police on a, a number of different that fronts. are serious. I mean, he faces potential indictment. Yeah, there will uh, uh, could be a recommendation for an indictment from the police later this year. The attorney general then would there's have to some make precedent for that in Israel as well. There is, there is. Um, but he remains, I think, uh, uh, considered by many Israelis to be a uh, uh, someone who's been very credible on Israel's security, core security needs at a time when there is a lot of uh, doubt about who the leaders of the Palestinians will be or whether the current leaders have it within them to, to make hard decisions. And That's the other issue is that the Palestinians have been disappointing. They've been very disappointing, and, it's a, and, and therefore it's, it's, it's a good foil you know, for an Israeli leader turning down what seems to be a very uh, forthright uh, and, and forward-leaning Palestinian leadership. They pay more of a price for that. For Netanyahu, he hasn't had that generally because President Abbas has been uh, disappointing in many ways. So I, I think he is still seen by many Israelis as uh, uh, somebody they trust with their overall security, uh, since they have doubts about the prospects of two states under this uh, pairing with these Palestinian leaders. They don't, he doesn't pay that high a price it's for really that. why he got reelected. He wasn't all that popular, but on this particular issue, he had credibility. Yeah. And he also, as you remember, you were right in the middle of that. He played a very hard, what appeared to be kind of a, what we would call the race card here uh, going into that election. And he renounced, he said, under my leadership, there'll never be a two-state solution. Right. He, he was basically uh, trailing in the polls going into the final weekend of the uh, last election. And the only way he could recover those votes was to pull them from other parties on the right. Uh, that is to say, he had to kind of play to the furthest right elements of Israeli politics, uh, bring them back into the Likud fold, and also uh, suggest to them that they might be end up with a prime minister from the left. And so uh, Naftali Bennett, his uh, right-wing rival and now coalition partner, uh, lost probably three or four seats in that final weekend because the prime minister was saying things what about— What was your reaction to that? Uh, well, I thought the prime minister um, uh, made some uh, made, a, made an ugly statement on election day about uh, the Arabs. calling into question the legitimacy of Arab citizens of Israel voting. He later apologized for it, mm-hmm. um, but it showed how uh, he was willing to play you know just about any card uh, to to get those voters to come back home and and support him. By the way, now he. You know, I'd say now he's been prime minister eight and a half years this time, plus an earlier term in the 90s. You know, there is a kind of a natural process in democracies where at some point a leader who has been there for a long time uh, is sort of uh, pushed out. It happened to Thatcher. It happened to Blair. Uh, you know, there are those who think the next election, quite apart from legal troubles, quite apart from policy issues, will be one. So you need an opponent. You need an opponent. And, and there is uh, yeah, your Lapid who is rising in the polls. But you know, it has challenges. Uh, and it, But it may be that there will be that uh, feeling among Israelis that, you know, we just need a change. On the other hand, a lot of people thought that before the last election as well. Um, you, you, were, uh, you were right in the middle of it when uh, uh, two big issues. One is the, the, the Iran uh, agreement, which obviously was deeply opposed by uh, Netanyahu and probably a majority of uh, Israelis, and then the decision uh, at the end of the administration uh, to uh, not to veto the resolution in the UN condemning the settlements and Israeli policy, both of which uh, were uh, 
uh, roundly denounced by the Israelis. Uh, talk about that and those decisions, and then I want to talk about where we are today. Sure. The uh, Iran deal uh, was, uh, you're correct, uh, widely viewed uh, in Israel, not only by Prime Minister Netanyahu, Netanyahu was a bad deal. Uh, what was a little bit vexing for those of us who had worked on that issue with the Israelis for years, going back to the beginning of the Obama administration, was that it really did derive from a common strategic goal of preventing an Iranian nuclear weapon. There was no question uh, in either government that that was a completely unacceptable outcome. That regime, given its uh, ideology and its threats and the way it conducts itself regionally, uh, could never be allowed to get that technology. And so we had worked for years in very, very close cooperation to uh, build the intelligence picture of the nuclear program in Iran to build out a sanctions regime and then enforce it. And that's really what put the economic pressure on Iran that ultimately brought them to the table in a serious way, finally. But we always sort of knew that uh, we would probably, if the negotiations ever got serious, draw the line differently between a good agreement and a bad agreement. And indeed, that's sort of what happened as we uh, uh, reached the decision points of early 2015. You know, then the question is, how do you deal with that disagreement? And it's a big one. It's important. And and I don't fault Israelis for feeling that sense of vulnerability. You know, those differences of perspective are legitimate, given that we're a global power, given where we sit physically, geographically, given our military capabilities, and Israel, which is closer to the threat and more What was the alternative, though? Uh, Realistically, they were months away from a weapon. This is the problem, and this was the argument we made consistently, is that had we uh, not reached an agreement that met our conditions of systematically blocking off every pathway Iran has to a nuclear weapon, and that's what this agreement did, we would have been faced with uh, trying to maintain the sanctions against Iran at a time when most of the rest of the world was... It was sort of miraculous to get the sanctions in the first place, and to but s- it was always, and to say uh, it was always uh, predicated on getting an agreement. Absolutely, absolutely. Those, nego- those sanctions were already fraying. There were many countries, not only Russia and China, but others who were looking for ways to wriggle out of those obligations. And if we were seen as the party that sort of walked away from the negotiating they table, would have collapsed. they would have collapsed. And so then Iran would have had uh, the return to the international uh, economic system and no restrictions on its nuclear program. Did, did, the, um, did, did, did Netanyahu uh, favor a military solution? I think he always felt there was no other solution. Uh, and is that a solution? I mean, can, can, you, can you destroy the Iranian nuclear threat? Or could you have militarily? Well, that was something else President Obama did uh, during those years, was he built and put in place a military option, uh, which uh, did not exist before, uh, and which, yes, contained the capability to really destroy uh, the Iranian uh, nuclear uh, facilities. and he was prepared, I believe, to this day. Uh, he was prepared to use that if there were no other way to prevent Iran from from breaking out. Um, I know Wendy Sherman was here uh, recently, mm-hmm. and, and she made an important uh, point, which was uh, while you can bomb facilities, you can't bomb away knowledge. Uh, and right. so the downside of the military option is that it would have destroyed some of those facilities. Uh, but it wouldn't have taken away the knowledge. It probably would have lost us the international consensus around trying to keep Iran uh, uh, from from breaking out, and, and Iran would have gained a great deal of international sympathy. And then within two to three years, they could have rebuilt those facilities uh, and made a dash into a breakout for a bomb. So 
This agreement, which buys us at least 10 to 15 years uh, with systematic monitoring of all the different pathways that Iran could take to make sure they don't break out, uh, buys us much more time. It doesn't solve this problem, and the president never claimed it did solve this problem for all time, but it buys us much more time and gives us much more intelligence with much, with much greater international support than we would have ended up with after a military strike. On the resolution at the UN, um, this was hotly debated both here and uh, and and in Israel, uh, and the argument against it was, you've given the UN now the authority to um, uh, uh, to pursue uh, incitement, you know, arguments of incitement, and that you know against Israel, uh, that uh, and given international bodies more authority than than they should have, or you want them to have over Israel. Um, and I know you must have, you must still get uh, barraged with questions about that yeah. uh, in Israel. Uh, on the other hand, um, there was no movement on this question of settlements, and there was aggressive movement towards settlements. Yeah, you know, I, I uh, uh, this was really sort of the last chapter of my ambassadorship, and and all Israelis, not only uh, those in the prime minister's camp, were unhappy about it, and so it sort of colored. My uh, my final weeks there, and uh, not that that that's that important, but uh, you know I, I probably could have lived without it uh, from that <laughs> point of view. Um, I do uh, I can defend it. Uh, it. It was actually not my preference. I mean, I think had we been able to shape a resolution to be more like a report the quartet had issued in the summer that I think applied the. Uh, responsibility to all the different parties a bit more evenly that that I think could have been a, a maybe a more constructive uh, uh, product but the, that's not how the Security Council works we were not really in a, a position to just draft what we wanted and get it passed we were going to have to deal with something the Palestinians were able to get one of their allies on the council to present and so that's what happens and all through the fall we were talking about this very openly with the Israelis and I said to them you know if I don't know how we would respond to a resolution like that. We did veto one in 2011, and but this one, maybe it'll be drafted more cleverly. Maybe it'll put in some balanced language about terrorism and incitement. Actually, they did include that in the end. Uh, maybe it will just be hard to, for us to, to, to find the hook on which to hang the veto. But at least, if you know that's coming, this should be a period of uh, relative quiet on the issue of settlements because you don't want the decision makers to have that weighing heavily on their mind when the when the time comes. It went in the other direction. And it went in the other direction. First, there was a new settlement announced right when President Obama traveled to Israel for former President Perez's funeral. And about two weeks after we had signed the $38 billion memorandum of understanding for military assistance, kind of a, a, an odd way to <laughs> sort of say thank you for those steps. Um, and then after our election, there was a kind of hooping and hollering sense that they had a green light from yeah Trump. there was a belief which turns out not to have been the case right. uh, that the trump administration was going to take the the reins off completely build anywhere you want annex anything and end part of it was that they uh, he appointed an ambassador uh david friedman uh who was an attorney from jersey new jersey who uh, had been a financial supporter of the uh, settlement movement and an outspoken and had said some things about American Jews who opposed that that were deeply, deeply offensive. Right. 
Right. And so there were Israelis, particularly on the right, who said, great, this is a sea change. Now we can legalize illegal settlements. And there was Knesset legislation advancing to do just that. Now we can start annexing. The two-state solution is dead. Uh, Thank you, uh, President Trump. And I I said to them, you know, he's not president yet. If you actually think that's going to be the policy of the new administration, well, I I would disagree with it. But wait till January to adjust your policies accordingly. President Obama is still president. So by the time uh, that resolution came up, and it was, you know, kind of in the crazy period right before the holidays, uh, as as things were nearing an end, then this legislation to legalize illegal building had advanced. You know, the president had a tough decision. I mean, had he vetoed it, he could have said, look, the UN is an inherently unfriendly uh, body, and it is, and that's why we've always protected Israel uh, from unfair criticism there. On the other hand, he said to say, number one, this resolution is drafted more in a more balanced way. But number two, if I veto it, am I somehow giving my assent to this uh, race to legalize and annex and, mm-hmm. and build that I believe is fundamentally uh, dangerous for Israel's future as a Jewish and democratic state? So, you know, it was a tough call. It was a judgment call. In the end, uh, he made the call to abstain. Let's go to, um, to – I want to ask you about Trump because, as you point out – um, and you did earlier that uh, it hasn't worked out as as some of the right in Israel uh, anticipated. At least in the early going here, he has been discouraging of the uh, of the settlements, and uh, presumably you see other signs that he's pursuing a more conventional course that's consistent with what past administrations have done. Right. So that's the that funny thing happened between inaugura- uh, election day and inauguration day, at least as it looks from uh, to some Israelis who were expecting something very different, in that they must have started talking to a lot of other people, including Arab diplomats. Uh, it took a while, but eventually the Palestinians as well. And they, I think, started to understand the connections between these issues. If you decide that you're going to say, uh, we don't have any problem with building of settlements, or if you decide to say, you know, on the first day, we're going to move our embassy to Jerusalem, which I actually think is not an impossible thing to do. Yes, I know you've written on that. We can get back to that. Um, At the same time, to try to convince Arab states uh, who want to participate or you want to participate in a regional process that will show Israelis there's a prospect of being integrated and normalized into the region and put some positive pressure on the Palestinians to come to the table in a useful way, those two things don't really go together. Uh, And so they seem to figure that out even before inauguration, certainly in the run-up to the prime minister's visit uh, to Washington, uh, in which the president several times, the White House said, we have concerns about continuing settlement construction. They didn't say everything, nothing can happen or all settlements have to go immediately, but they did say continuing construction is problematic for this goal we are trying to achieve. President even mentioned that in in sitting in the Oval Office with BB. He turned to the prime minister and he said, you are going to hold back on settlements a little bit, aren't you? And I noticed he didn't get a response. He didn't get much of a response. Subsequent to that, uh, his uh, envoy, Jason Greenblatt, another lawyer from the Trump organization, went out there. And I have to say, he's made an impressive debut. He, first of all, didn't only meet with Netanyahu and Abbas. He met everybody, Israelis of all political stripes, Palestinians of many political stripes, refugees, students, settlers, soldiers, business people. I thought that was the right thing to do. Uh, in the, both of those societies, there are other actors besides the leaders who will help determine the success or failure of the diplomatic efforts, and it was useful for him to hear that. But number two, they entered into a weeks-long negotiation with the Israelis that reminded me a lot of several episodes in the Obama administration, which was how much less 
settlement construction will go on during a period you're trying to get the Palestinians back to the table and trying to get Arab states to participate in a regional process. In the end, they haven't reached an agreement by all counts. Well, and in fact, the prime minister announced that he was going to move forward on a whole new settlement. And and uh, under the pressures of his cabinet, he says he's going to go ahead and build a new settlement for those from a settlement that was evacuated under court order, and they will allow building within the built-up areas of existing settlements. The Trump administration has not endorsed that. Uh, I think they are continuing to push for uh, less uh, and um, something they can take to Arab states and say, look, this is, you're not going to be embarrassed. If you come to a regional process, you're not going to be embarrassed by some splashy announcement of settlement construction uh, the, same, the same week you show up. You know, there's a, sometimes a belief, and some articulate this, that because there is an actual alignment of interests between Israel and many of the Sunni Arab states uh, against other regional threats like Iran and like ISIS, uh, and that's real, and they are talking often mm-hmm. quietly but often less quietly with Egypt and Jordan about how to protect each other against those threats. But that doesn't mean they, they can look the other way There's on a this belief, issue. right, that, they, that the Palestinian issue no longer matters. It's true. If you go and talk to Arab leaders, they don't necessarily put the Palestinian issue at the top or top five of their priority list. But it is different from saying they could be seen as throwing them under the bus. That misunderstands the role of the Palestinian issue in Arab politics. And I have to say, to the new administration's credit, they seem to have understood that, uh, and they're trying to find a way. But uh, it also sounds like they may meet with the same frustrations that past administrations. <laughs> it's entirely possible. Uh, you know, Tom Friedman sat here and uh, a few weeks ago, and he said uh, the two-state solution is dead. That uh, And he said it with regret. He wasn't saying with any particular joy. But he said he just can't see. He thinks that time has run out uh, on that. Why, why is that wrong? Well, I don't know if it's wrong. I hope it's wrong. I don't know if it's dead. Uh, you know, there is some tipping point uh, where because of the, uh, the way attitudes have evolved on both sides, in which both sides still say in majorities, but declining majorities, we want two states, but it's the other side that won't make the necessary compromises. As those attitudes harden, and of course, as the map changes uh, with, with additional settlement construction, it, it, will get, uh, it will reach a point of impossibility. The thing about tipping points is you often don't know you're past them until you're well past them. So I don't know if it's a little ahead of us, I hope that's still true, or if it's a little behind us, in which case Tom is right. Um, I do think that uh, we, as Israel's closest ally, uh, and we as a country uh, that uh, benefits from the kind of security and economic and societal partnership we've built with that uh, country, uh, have an interest in ensuring that it remains strong and secure and Jewish and democratic, because that's the Israel that uh, uh, we've been able to build that partnership with. And if you take the two-state solution off the table, some of those things are going to start to change. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm not ready to uh, throw, uh, throw it out uh, and say it's dead. Uh, I do think uh, at the same time that we continue to work for it, and I'm glad the administration is, uh, there's probably a, a policy planning exercise that people outside of government and think tanks and others should be thinking about. It's not a happy question, but what does the U.S.-Israel relationship look like uh, if we don't have a two-state solution? Once we sort of know it's not going to happen, uh, what are our options? Uh, how will we maintain our interests, our security partnership, certain moral commitments as well, at a time when uh, many Americans, uh, much of the rest of the world, and not a small number of Israelis uh, will say, you know, Israel is not quite the same Jewish and democratic society that uh, it was originally intended to be at its founding? One uh, last question about uh, President Trump. In his uh, remarks with, in his side by side with uh, 
Prime Minister Netanyahu when they were at the White House, he kind of casually said, well, you know, one state, two state, whatever they decide is fine with uh, with me. Uh, how did you interpret that? I didn't buy it. I didn't buy it that it was a change of policy. And indeed, the next day, several administration officials made clear the policy is still two states. And I was very glad about that. I think it was a favor for Prime Minister Netanyahu, who is under uh, great pressure from his cabinet, who are dominated by ministers uh, who actually oppose a two-state solution, not to use that language. Now, he has endorsed a two-state solution with various caveats, a demilitarized Palestinian state that recognizes a Jewish state, since a speech he gave in uh, uh, in Bar-Ilan University in 2009. With the, inter- with the interregnum of the, d- the days before the election last year when he said he didn't. That is correct. That is correct. And then he yeah. sort of walked that back after he came in. But uh, So you're saying everybody's saying stuff that they don't necessarily believe. Well, I, I, it's how I read uh, that uh, statement by the president, was that he was doing a favor to Prime Minister Netanyahu to help him get in and out of that press conference without uh, crossing lines that members of his cabinet had, 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 uh, had set for him. Now, you asked, you know, what are the prospects? I mean, I do think One of the reasons I think it's not dead yet uh, is because a lot of this depends on leadership. Uh, And even when it looks impossible, uh, when the right leaders or the right combination of leaders emerge, uh, things that look impossible are suddenly uh, possible again. I don't think the dynamic of Netanyahu and Abbas is going to produce that breakthrough. I don't think any uh, Israeli coalition that looks like the current one uh, could do it. Uh, It may well require new Palestinian leadership, and that's a huge question mark Mm -hmm. what follows uh, Abbas. Uh, But I do think that that's one of the things that I hold on to as hope that the two-state solution is not dead, is that the right leaders, properly motivated, and who invest in each other, as uh, partners and show that they trust each other and make it a little bit easier to make hard decisions instead of the dynamic we've basically had between Netanyahu and Abbas where they mistrust each other and are always scoring points and positioning for the blame game, uh, that would still give me some hope that it's possible. Well, you are a man of faith, apparently. <laughs> uh, so good to be with you, Dan Shapiro. And uh, I value the time we spent together in the White House, and I really honor Uh, your service at a very, very difficult time and a very challenging uh, posting. And I wish you the best in the future. Thank you, David. It was definitely an honor uh, to serve with you and uh, and serve the president. And he put me in the place where uh, I hopefully made a a good contribution. Absolutely did. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number Smart Beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.